Welcome to the State of Research podcast, brought to you by the Office of the Vice President for Research at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Mason Force, and with this podcast, I hope to bring to light the world-renowned research that takes place here at CSU. By interviewing researchers, we can demonstrate how discovering answers to complex questions is a journey filled with unique stories. Throughout this podcast, I hope you'll be inspired by these stories of determination and innovation that propel us into the future. This is the State of Research. On today's episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Rebecca Kading about her research into the spread of infectious disease. Dr. Kading's studies about the transmission of viruses through mosquitoes and bats help us better understand the mechanisms behind outbreaks throughout the world, and I was truly excited to get the chance to sit down and have a conversation with her. What is your morning routine? My morning routine? It's kind of it's kind of funny you know, the the scene from Lord of the Rings where you know the the war's about to start and it's you know it's kind of peaceful and then it's like, and now it begins and it's <laughs> kind of like my house with the three boys when they wake up and oh, wow. getting everybody ready for school and out the mm-hmm. door and then um, kind of you know then then it's my peaceful drive with my coffee on the way to the office but the the initial um, the scene in the house is is uh, is hectic with getting everybody ready <laughs> we hit the ground running in the morning <laughs> what kind of research do you do here what kind of diseases do you focus on is it like that do you focus on just one kind of disease or is it really broad it's uh, it's more well a little bit of both so our main research area is on mosquito-borne viruses mm-hmm. um, but I, although I have studied malaria before too but but generally the ecology and transmission of vector-borne pathogens and so pathogens that are transmitted to people by mosquitoes or other blood-feeding arthropods. Okay, so I, I tend to think of malaria just mm-hmm. with mosquitoes. Is that one of your big ones? I did my dissertation work on malaria mm-hmm. in Zambia um, and then here at CSU we've been focusing uh, mostly on arboviruses. And so our lab does a lot of work with Zika virus, as well as... Uh, I have um, heard of that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, as well as Riffelli fever virus is a virus that we're very interested in. I heard something about Zika and pregnancy. Uh, that was pretty big about a year or so ago. Yes, uh, Zika has kind of turned our field on its head in a number of ways in that its modes of transmission and pathology that have been observed have not been um, seen before with other mosquito-borne viruses. And so um, Zika can be sexually transmitted um, and it can also cause severe fetal malformations and neurological disease in some patients that haven't, hasn't been seen before. And so it's been um, kind of scary and, and a, a big learning experience and, and lots of areas of research happening um, surrounding Zika virus. Um, but my, my lab's been focused on the perspective of the mosquito um, in different uh, that's not something I would have thought of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and looking at the the competency of, of different mosquito species to transmit Zika okay when when did you know this is something you wanted to go into like just generally um, I kind of fell into it but it just wasn't what I you know grew up wanting to do um, yeah and, and so it came about you know when I made the decision to to go to college and what to major and I was very focused on wildlife conservation and that's what I I wanted to study birds and mammals and ecology and and I, I ended up just I, I grew up in Delaware and so I ended up at the University of Delaware for f- financial reasons but but it also ended up being the, the perfect fit for me um, in the end and so I'd with the wildlife I had wanted 
that as a major, but Delaware at the time didn't have uh, that as its own major. It was a concentration within entomology. And so I was forced to take the insect classes in order <laughs> to take the bird and mammal classes. And I wasn't thrilled about that at the beginning, but I was sitting in you know entomology classes and I loved it. And it was fascinating. And, um, and then wow. I got a job at Mosquito Control, um, working for the state for a couple of summers. And I and Delaware has National Wildlife Refuges on the coastline, and so I was up in the helicopter doing surveillance wow. for larvae and <laughs> over the National Wildlife Refuges, and you know driving boats around uh, in the salt marshes, and it was fantastic. And I got to bird watch to my heart's content, and um, and at the same time, this was pre West Nile, and so um, they were still doing virus surveillance, but for Eastern Equine Encephalitis virus, and so they had sentinel chickens and um, testing mosquito pools for viruses, and so that kind of piqued my interest in the um, the public health aspect of, of this. So there's you know mosquito control for nuisance, but then there's diseases that they carry too mm-hmm. that are pretty significant, um, and so it it got me kind of on this trajectory where you know this is a we're looking at the health of the whole system, people, uh, human health, animal health, environmental health, and how do these diseases get transmitted and by these mosquitoes, and, and how can we prevent um, disease in people? Um, and, and, but it, from, a, from an academic standpoint, it's, it's, it's fascinating as well. Wow. So if you hadn't ended up in that insect class, your whole career would have been what, about birds and... Well, wildlife conservation. I guess. <laughs> it's it's uh yeah it's hard to know where where I would have yeah. ended up. I did do bird research as an undergraduate um, mm-hmm. with my major advisor, and so and that and I love that as well. But it's it's all come full circle now in my career because um, I did have that wildlife emphasis as an undergrad, and then I went more entomology for my master's, and then um, my dissertation was more on molecular biology and in combination with field work. Mm-hmm. So it's all come together now, you know, so we do some work with vertebrates, we do some work with mosquitoes, but it's looking at the whole system. And so I use it, I use it all. <laughs> wow. mm-hmm. was, was there anything else you thought of as a career? Yeah, yeah, my, my former life, I was going to be a ballerina. <laughs> I wasn't planning to be a scientist at all. Wow. <laughs> and so that has changed for the for the good. It's all worked out very well. Okay. Um, but my focus um, on the first part of my, my life was on, on, on ballet. Wow. So how long did you do that? Um, up until I was 19. Um, so I was pretty serious about it. I went to a performing arts high school and then I moved to Philadelphia after that. <laughs> and had a gap year, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, which was my attempt to pursue the profession. And I did perform mm-hmm. um, with Pennsylvania Ballet and wow. was in the top tier okay. of their school, but was not under contract with the company. And um, it, was a, it was a year of growth and transition and <laughs> kind of discovering that maybe that wasn't as idyllic as a profession and, and <laughs> long-term life goal that I had originally wanted it to be. It's still something that I love. You know, I, I did continue to, to dance recreationally after that. But it was, you know, kind of the transitional year. So while I was kind of figuring out what to do next, you know, I started volunteering at the Natural History Museum in Philly um, and just kind of getting some, some experience in figuring out what, what direction to go. You know, started applying to, to schools and it all went from there. So. Wow. Well... <laughs> It sounds like we gained a valuable uh, researcher at the expense of your performance career. So <laughs> <laughs> you must be very good, though, right? Um, I was. 
now. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't, haven't dabbled in it recently? No, no dabbling recently. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, that is fascinating. So over the course of your research, has anything really surprised you? I don't know if you had any kind of, you know, aha moments. At CSU, we've, we've had a couple of um, cool discoveries mm-hmm. um, over the past couple of years. Um, I have uh, one student who's a DVM PhD student and she's working on a, a bat virus. And so it's a virus that I discovered um, when I worked at the CDC um, and she's using it in her dissertation work to do a lot more characterization. And so we were collaborating with Tony Schauntz's group um, and doing some experimental infections in the bat colony with this with this new virus. And bats are, are um, interesting and you know I think there, there's a lot yet to learn about the immune response yeah. of bats and, and um, their ability to harbor these um, some highly pathogenic agents. So we were kind of going into the experiment with the assumption that well they're not these bats aren't going to get sick because bats rarely show any signs of disease um, but they did and so so we have a, a virus bat combination now that that I think we can pursue further to try to understand what is what is the immune response of a bat that's actually sick from something um, what does that look like so that that experiment gave us some some uh, exciting research directions to pursue um, that we're still still working on um, the other cool thing that that has come up recently in our studies with Rift Valley fever virus this is a virus that's not in the United States but it's kind of on the watch list for things that we don't want to show up here but we should right. be prepared because mosquito-borne viruses move around <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're studying the ability of this virus to be transmitted vertically in mosquitoes so a female mosquito to her progeny so then when the, the new mosquitoes hatch and rear up some of them would already be infected and able to start an outbreak. Um, and so we want to see if North American mosquito species are capable of this type of transmission because that would affect the, the risk that establishment of that virus might might pose to, to an introduction. So we were infecting uh, mosquitoes and then look, testing the, the progeny mosquitoes for the virus. And, and it was interesting that, you know, while the vertical transmission initially is happening in Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, um, the progeny have been negative so far. So there's something mechanistically happening that's blocking the passage of the virus through the immature mosquito life stages. And so that's something um, that was surprising um, to us that we are, um, that we want to understand further what's going on there. The vertical transmission would be a mechanism that would help the virus persist in nature, like overwintering or uh-huh. um, surviving periods of drought. So if it's just hanging out in the mosquito population, um, it's not going away. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we want to know whether or not this happens. And at least, you know, I think there's going to be some variation, like it might happen in some species but not others. Um, and that's important information to know. Um, so should there be an introduction of Rift Valley fever, what are the key mosquito species we should be worried about as far as it establishing itself in. So by researching transmission methods, you can kind of predict how, if it started to spread, how it would spread right. effectively. Right. And so, you know, you can kind of come up with a most wanted list of <laughs> what mosquito species would be most important and to target control efforts for if there was an introduction. So I guess that goes along the lines of how is your research helping to keep people safe then? Um, so we're, our research would impact in a couple of areas. So it, with our work on understanding the transmission and nature um, of these viruses and the circulation between mosquito species and humans and, and other animals would help towards the predictive efforts of where the vulnerabilities are in the cycle that we could control, 
what species should we be focusing our surveillance and control efforts on. And then for probably post-outbreak mitigation, you know, if we, you know, know, have some idea of where to target the intervention um, from our research, then that, that's an important thing to, to jump on things quickly. I also read something on your bio about a neglected disease, and I was a little unclear on what exactly that meant. Neglected is kind of a term that's used to describe pathogens that maybe aren't as prevalent mm -hmm. as HIV or malaria or tuberculosis, which are infectious diseases, but they're, they're major, um, mm -hmm. major disease burden around the world and very well studied. Neglected diseases would, would kind of be those that aren't that prevalent, but still have a significant public health impact on very vulnerable populations around the world. So it could be in a developing country, in a, in a very rural area, very poor area, or even a homeless population in the United States would be vulnerable to transmission of certain, certain pathogens. So neglected kind of encompasses those concepts. Okay, yeah. So just because it isn't a large disease that's affecting a huge number of people, you know, it's, it's still significant for the number of people that it is affecting. Absolutely, it's right. still important, yeah. Some parasitic diseases are considered neglected. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, a lot of the, the, most of the arboviruses are considered neglected. And what, diseases. and what is an arbovirus? Arbovirus is a, a virus transmitted by an arthropod. Okay. So mosquitoes, ticks, fleas, sandflies, arthropods, insects, yeah. Got it. <laughs> so mosquitoes seem pretty detrimental in general. Do they serve really any kind of a purpose in, in nature? <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious. They, basically, they spread disease, they, they're a nuisance, a pest. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, all of that. They're, they're they're in the food chain. Somewhere. They're, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're a food source as uh, immature and adult stages. The way evolution has occurred, you know, their pathogens are exploiting the blood feeding behavior of insects mm -hmm. to, to get transmitted. And so there it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's a purpose, just a minimal, minimal one. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned you started in Delaware. Mm -hmm. What drew you to Colorado State in particular? CSU has had a long history of excellence in arbovirus and, and uh, arbovirus uh, research. And so, I mean, there's a, a nidus of faculty out here, 12 or 15 of us that are mm -hmm. focused on these arboviral diseases, but from very different and complementary perspectives. And I, that's a huge strength of CSU. It's not very common. You know, if, if, if there's a lot of institutions that have excellent medical entomologists on their faculty, but they're the only medical entomologists in the department or something like that. And at CSU, we've got a group and is the, the potential to make a, a huge impact on the field, people with expertise on this subject in very different perspectives. Yeah, it's really nice to have peers who do very similar things to you, mm -hmm. and you bounce ideas off them and work with them one-on-one. -on -one. Yep. Mm -hmm. So have you, have you actually seen like the impact that these diseases have on communities firsthand? Have you been able to travel much? I have. Um, I've been very, um, very fortunate mm -hmm. in my career to do quite a bit of international work. During my most pivotal point early on um, was during my dissertation work in Zambia. I was working on malaria. And so we were out in pretty rural areas collecting mosquitoes from people's huts, people's houses. Um, and one day a woman came running over to us with her child in her arms and the child was, was unconscious. And so we 
I mean, we stopped, we dropped everything, what we were doing, and, wow. and loaded them up in the truck and, <laughs> and uh, drove back to the, the mission hospital, which is where kind of the, the field research station was. And it was about 45 minutes away down bumpy roads. And so, you know, they had this family, and they were planning to be at the hospital for a while, so they just started loading up baskets of food and, mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of stuff. And so they, we gave them a ride there. This little guy was, um, was three years old, and his name was Frederick. And he had cerebral malaria, so he had plasmodium falciparum, and the parasites had lodged in the brain ves- the, the blood vessels oh. in his brain. They gave him intravenous cleaning, and he did survive. Um, and I got to go see wow. him after that. But That's um, it was traumatic, and this yeah. is something that happens all the time, every day, every minute. Um, and so it, this, you know, and and uh, being a mother now, as a three-year-old son, mm-hmm. I, I I mean I can't. Imagine the what families go through to, to lose a child to, to that, um, and so it it did bring it home very quickly. You know, yeah. this isn't just a yeah. science experiment. This is something that really is devastating to, to families all over the world, and so and it, and it's important to, to study this um, so we can help reduce that burden on the, on the global population. Wow, well, it's incredible you were actually able to go and you know see the kind of impacts you can have. I guess you think of Friedrich a, a lot then? Um, I wonder, I wonder, you know, what he's doing now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was in 2005, so I wonder where he's at now. But <laughs> Zambia, right? Mm-hmm. You spend a lot of time in general in the African regions or South America at all? Mostly Africa, mm-hmm. so um, yeah, that project was in Zambia, and then my work currently is in um, Uganda and a little bit in Tanzania. So we're yeah in East in East Africa. Have done some West Nile virus work in Guatemala, which is awesome. But it, yeah, our projects currently are in, in Uganda. What's what was the most striking thing about about traveling to Africa? I mean, did anything just just about the culture or the the environment? Once you go, you gotta go back. I yeah, mean, it's just it really the the people are so warm and welcoming and and genuine and generous and loving. I mean, it, it, the, the communities that we are working in, you know, we're, we're very welcoming to us and the work that we're, we're doing. Um, and it's the collaborative, the collaborators in those countries have been wonderful um, and being able to work with them um, to do, um, to do these, to carry out these projects. It's very striking, you know, to, to be able to go into these very, very rural, poor villages and, and see that the people there, you know they're they're suffering, but they have this internal joy this about them, and they're that really makes you think. Yeah, <laughs> and it's very it's very humbling. You know the things that we get stressed out about here, various materialism. All the all the stuff all we the have, and yeah. and to be standing there in an eight by eight hut collecting mosquitoes is you know kind of brings brings some reality to what our problems really are. <laughs> So, um, I hope I can go someday. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, was sort of a takeaway just to realize that, that we're blessed in a lot of ways here. Yeah, I really think more Americans need to see that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It really puts everything in perspective. Mm-hmm. You do a lot of research on the bat colony, you mentioned? Yeah. Do you do it, say, with, with other animals? Do, and we have mosquito environments? Yeah. yeah, my lab does a lot of field and lab work okay. together. So, you know, there's certain questions that we might come up with in the field that we need to do something experimentally in the lab mm-hmm. to, to address that and put some perspective on our field observations. 
Um, and so I try to incorporate that to all the students that, uh, that I take on that, you know, they have some field and lab experience and they can be comfortable in, in both of those areas. So the bat work that we do has been mostly field work, but, but again, there's, you know, the question that came up that we needed to address experimentally. So we collaborated with, with mm. Tony Shouts to do that um, with the bat colony. But we, we maintain mosquito colony for various experiments and we do field work for mosquitoes as well. I suppose you've seen your fair share of mosquito bites then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, it's part of the part, part of the, the deal. <laughs> Got to go where they are. <laughs> wow, well, I admire your sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> I could not do that when mosquito bites drive me crazy. <laughs> do you uh, prefer field work over lab work if you had to pick one? You know, it, it, it's been, you know, exciting either way. So, you mm -hmm. know, when we've been kind of working on things in the lab a while, it's really nice to get out into the field. And then, you know, when you're in the field and collecting the samples, it's really exciting to get back here and, and see what we find in the lab. And so the components balance each other out really well. Moving forward, what questions would you like to answer? Like, where is your research taking you? We're looking forward to getting back out in the field um, in Uganda to continue some of the work with viruses and bats there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we know that bats have viruses um, and we know that viruses emerge. And so we want to look more in depth at that dynamic in an area that seems to be a ripe environment for emerging viruses. And so we have a particular network of caves that we'll be studying in eastern Uganda, right on the, the Kenyan border. People go in these caves all the time, local people tourists for a variety of reasons and we don't understand what all those reasons are we just know that there's healthy bat populations and high traffic in those caves and so we want to understand more about the human bat interface and what are some vulnerabilities and behaviors that would promote spillover of, of pathogens um, we want to look at the seasonality of pathogen shedding by those bats and also the movement of the bats among the cave system. And so we'll be doing some GPS tracking and uh, non-destructive sampling to look at the virus seasonality of shedding and the bat movement to see how the pathogens are, are moving with the bats around um, this area and what people are exposed to. And, um, so that's kind of where we're headed with, with the bat project. And then for, for Rift Valley Fever, we have some you know, exciting new research directions regarding the vector confidence and vertical transmission of this virus in North American mosquito species that I think will be really informative for assessing the risk that we would be faced with having this virus established if it was introduced. Now tell me a little bit more about Rafaeli fever, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so this is a, a virus that's endemic to East Africa, and it's been recognized since the 1930s, and it tends to cause cyclical outbreaks that can be pretty large in magnitude every 10 to 15 years. Outbreaks are, are very closely linked to climate patterns, so rainfall gets pretty heavy on, on East African plains. These areas flood, and mm -hmm. mosquitoes emerge in great numbers after those rainfall events. Some of them are already infected. Um, with the virus, and so that can kickstart virus circulation, then more mosquito species get involved, and then um, that can cause a, a pretty large outbreak. The importance of this virus is that it's a significant livestock pathogen in addition to a human pathogen, and so can experience high percentage of mortality in adult livestock. Also, what's characteristic of these outbreaks is abortion storms in, in small ruminants. Um, so that affects animal health, but the 
food security and the economy of these areas too. These people are largely dependent upon their their animals, um, and so the virus can can have a huge devastating impact on that, as well as significant human disease. Most people would just to get kind of a flu-like illness, but you can get hemorrhagic fever and mm-hmm. and severe uh, other disease from from Rift Valley fever. So the real danger is is mainly the impact it can have on the livestock. It's a double whammy. It's it's one of these. It's a significant and, and high consequence virus for people and animals. But animals, yes, <laughs> it'd be bad. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I really appreciated having this conversation with you today. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, thank you, Mason. It's a pleasure to talk about it. And that's all we have for today. I want to offer a very special thank you to Dr. Kading and to you. Thanks for listening. Until next time on The State of Research.